If you've seen an American professional basketball game in the last 50 years, you're probably familiar with the NBA logo. It features a red and blue split background and a white silhouette of a basketball player in the middle. What you might not know is that that silhouette was taken from a photo of a real player. In 1969, NBA Commissioner J. Walter Kennedy commissioned Alan Siegel to create a new logo for the league. His instructions were simple, instantly iconic, patriotic, and easy to market. Siegel got to work and was flipping through an old sport magazine when he came across a photo of already legendary basketball player Jerry West, taken by Wen Roberts. This photo became an inspiration for the logo, a logo that now generates billions of dollars a year in licensing fees and is instantly recognizable to basketball fans worldwide. Jerry West was a great choice for the logo, as he was one of the greatest to ever play the game. In high school, he was selected to the All-American team. In college, he was as well, and was also named the Final Four Most Valuable Player. He co-captained the Olympic team in 1960 and brought home gold for Team USA. He went second in the 1960 NBA draft, drafted by the Minneapolis Lakers as they were transitioning to their new home in L.A. It's okay. I too have wondered where the lakes are in Los Angeles. Makes a bit more sense now, I hope. West played 14 years in the NBA and went to 14 All-Star games. He was an NBA All-Star Game MVP and an NBA Finals MVP. He would score 25,192 points in his career, and the Lakers retired his number in 1983. He was inducted into both the professional and college basketball halls of fame. And, of course, he has been immortalized in that iconic NBA logo. Not bad for a kid who learned to play basketball on a rusty backyard hoop and grew up the son of a coal mine electrician in Sheelian, West Virginia. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. Welcome to another episode of American Anthology. I've just finished traveling for a month in the great state of West Virginia. Even in the winter, it is a wonderful place to visit. The subdued beauty of the Allegheny Mountains, with their windy roads and crooked streams and trails covered with fall leaves as the trees clean house and prepare for spring. Waterfalls and white-tailed deer and the smell of wood smoke in the air. I had some spectacular meals and listened to some great music, learned a lot of Appalachian history, and enjoyed some cozy nights in the state park system's lodges and cabins. I even sipped a little moonshine. So thank you, West Virginia, for your hospitality and for some wonderful memories. Today on the podcast, I have four stories for you from the central and western parts of the state, including two from deep in the heart of coal country. So sit back and relax, and let me take you back to the heart of Appalachia. Six feet beneath that Appalachian town. 
They say blood is thicker than water. Rarely in American history has that notion had more weight or faced more tests than it did along the tug fork of the Big Sandy River from the start of the Civil War until 1890. The tug fork forms the border between Kentucky and what is now West Virginia. It is rugged, mountainous country, and in those days the people that lived there were self-sufficient, hardy, thick-skinned pioneers. Lured to the area by cheap land, they were mostly subsistence farmers, but even that proved difficult in the rocky, hilly terrain. It was into this environment that two boys would be born. They would grow up as friends, but end up as bitter enemies in a feud that captured headlines in its time and our imagination ever since. One was born Randolph McCoy on October 30th, 1825. The other was born 14 years later on September 9th, 1839. His family named him William Anderson Hatfield, but history remembers him as Devil Ants. Contrary to popular myth, both Hatfields and McCoys lived on both sides of the Tug Fork. It wouldn't be until much later that this border played a role. From the time both families moved to the area, there is no record of anything but amicable relations. They often intermarried, mixing their blood, which would complicate the situation then and cause headaches to historians, myself included, since. The Civil War brought hard times to the Tug Fork Valley and drew attention to that previously unthought-of border. Families on the Kentucky side, both Hatfields and McCoys, tended to remain loyal to the Union, while Hatfields and McCoys on the then-Virginia side were more sympathetic to the Confederacy. One notable exception, Randall McCoy, who lived in Kentucky but would fight side-by-side side with Devil Ants in support of the Southern cause. The war was ugly in the region, and it seems much of the fighting was over food and supplies, in a struggle just to survive. One person caught in this struggle was Asa Harmon McCoy, Randall's brother, who had fought for the Union. Devil Ants had a beef with Harmon, as he was called, believing that Harmon's unit was responsible for burning his cabin down and raiding his family's property, among other things. When Harmon was injured and returned home, Devil Ants sought his revenge. His uncle, Crazy Jim Vance, went to Harmon's, Finding him gone, he tracked Harmon through the January snow. When he found Harmon, he stripped him naked, beat him, and shot him dead. The death of Asa Harmon McCoy was not an end, though. It was only just the beginning. When the war ended and the men returned home, there were so many scars that needed to heal. Not just on the men, although there were many, but on their families and homes and communities. It would be 13 years before the feud would flame up again. It was 1878, and it was time to bring in the hogs in the Tug Fork Valley. In that region, hogs were often the difference between feeding your family and having them starve. They supplemented whatever wild game could be shot and could be traded for other supplies, like flour and sugar. A hog could feed a family for a month. It is, therefore, understandable why Randall McCoy was furious when he believed several of his hogs had been stolen by Devil Ants' cousin, Floyd Hatfield. He took his complaint to the law in those parts. Justice of the Peace 
Preacher Ants Hatfield, another cousin of Devil Ants. Preacher Ants was considered a fair man and was trusted by both families. Even so, he wanted to be impartial, so he called in a jury of six Hatfields and six McCoys. In the end, the key witness was Bill Staten, whose mother was a McCoy, but whose wife was a Hatfield. He claimed to have seen Floyd with the hogs before, that they were his hogs. On the basis of this testimony, Selkirk McCoy voted with the Hatfields, awarding the hogs to Floyd. It could be noted that while Selkirk was a McCoy, he worked for Devil Ants. Regardless, the decision was final. To add insult to injury, Randall was ordered to pay the court fees. He was furious. The McCoys would not forgive Bill Staten for his testimony, and periodic fights would break out between the two families, ironically, both McCoys by blood. Two years after the hog trial, two of Randall's nephews, Sam and Paris McCoy, encountered Stafford's son, Bill Jr., in the woods. Fearful, Bill Staten Jr. shot Paris. A fight ensued, and minutes later, Staten was dead. The boys were brought up on murder charges, and the person to try them was Devil Ants' brother, Wall. Because Paris had been shot, Wall declared them both not guilty on the grounds of self-defense. Later that same year, 1880, the people of the region gathered for Election Day in Pike County, Kentucky. As it was one of the few times in the year people came together in a public place, it was more a social gathering than a political one. It was there that Devil Ants' son, Johncy, then 18, met Randall's 21-year-old daughter, Rosanna. The two fell in love, and unbeknownst to the McCoys, Johncy took Rosanna home with him. She stayed with the Hatfields for some time, and Johncy got her pregnant. When she tried to return home, Randall wouldn't have her and banished her. She went to live with her Aunt Betty. Her brothers, Randall's sons, felt she had been dishonored, so they sought a warrant for Johncy's arrest on moonshining charges and tried to take him in. Rosanna didn't know what to do, so she rode and told Devil Ants, who immediately gave chase. Devil Ants rode them down, and while he let the McCoy boys go, he brought Johncy home with him. The McCoys felt betrayed by Rosanna, but she did, after all, have a Hatfield baby inside of her. They were blood now, too. The baby was born, but would die from measles at eight months old. Johncy would not marry her, and a disgraced and heartbroken Rosanna, who could not go home, would go seek work and shelter with a different part of her family. She died at 29. Johncy would end up marrying, six months after the baby died, Rosanna's first cousin, Nancy McCoy. In a twist that could not be made up, Nancy was the daughter of Asa Harmon McCoy, the Union soldier whose death sparked the feud to begin with. 1882. It was Election Day again. An argument broke out between Randall's son Tolbert and Devil Ants' cousin, Bad Lias, over a debt for $1.75, the price of a fiddle, and roughly $40 today. Devil Ants' brother, Ellison, stepped in to calm things down. Words were exchanged, and words turned to fists. 
Ellison took the upper hand, and Tolbert pulled a knife and stabbed him. Tolbert's brothers, Bill and Farmer, also pulled knives and also stabbed Ellison. Fighting for his life now, Ellison grabbed a rock and aimed for Tolbert. Bill drew a gun and shot Ellison. Despite being stabbed 27 times and shot, Ellison did not die. Another of Devilance's brothers, Elias, brought Ellison back to West Virginia and told what happened. The McCoys, understanding the fury that was about to rain down on those boys, tried to get them to jail, where at least they would be safe. Bill McCoy, who had pulled the trigger, was only 14, and so his brother Bud took his place, hoping in the commotion nobody would notice. These three boys then, Tolbert, Farmer, and now Bud McCoy, all Randall's sons, were being carted off to jail when Devil Ants and a posse of Hatfields rode into Kentucky and overtook them. Devil Ants took the three McCoy boys back to West Virginia and locked them in a schoolhouse to await their fate. Sally McCoy, who was Randall's wife and the boy's mother, crossed the tug fork and went to the schoolhouse to plead with Devil Ants. Devil Ants told her that if Ellison lived, he would turn the boys over to the authorities. But if Ellison died, they would be subjected to Hatfield justice. He didn't, however, keep Sally from seeing her boys and allowed her to spend time with them. Ellison did not live. When he died, the Hatfields marched the three boys back across the river, tied them to some native deciduous fruit-bearing trees called pawpaws, and executed them. Randall went to the authorities, and a grand jury indicted 20 Hatfields and three accomplices in the murder of Randall's sons Tolbert, Farmer, and Bud. The problem was that the murder took place in Kentucky, so there was no authority to make arrests in West Virginia. Devil Ants was a powerful man, and no one in West Virginia was dumb enough to extradite him. Five long years passed as Randall sought justice for the killing of his sons. Finally, he involved his cousin, lawyer Perry Klein, who called in a favor from the governor and got a $500 bounty put out for bringing in Devil Ants. Klein had his own vendetta with Devil Ants, whom he believed stole 5,000 acres from him decades earlier. He was also the relative who took in Rosanna McCoy after her baby died and Johnsy ran off with her cousin. Perry Klein was no fan of Devil Lance. Klein raised a posse to be led by quick-tempered, hired gun, Bad Frank Phillips, who was fearless and quick with his guns. The posse started making raids into West Virginia and threatening the Hatfields. On New Year's Eve, 1887, the Hatfields were trying to figure out what to do. They thought maybe they could intimidate Randall and get him to call off the posse. They formed a raiding party, led by Devil Ants' uncle, Crazy Jim Vance, and including Devil Ants' son, Cap Hatfield. It also included the slain Ellison Hatfield's son, also named Ellison, but called Cottontop because he was an albino. The next evening, New Year's Day, 1888, they slipped across the tug fork and made their way to Randall McCoy's cabin. They fired on the cabin with their guns and then set fire to it. In a moment that changed everything, 
Randall's 29-year-old daughter, Alifair, dashed towards the well to get water to put out the flames. One of the raiders, maybe Cap Hatfield, maybe Cottontop, leveled a gun and shot her dead. Her mother, Randall's wife Sally McCoy, ran to her side. One of the Hatfields clubbed her in the skull with a rifle. She would not die, but suffered permanent brain damage from the blow. Another McCoy, Randall and Sally's son Cal, was also killed, and the cabin burned to the ground. Randall, however, would escape with the rest of his family. But the damage had been done. When word got out about what happened, the very nature of the feud changed. Until that point, there was give and take, tit for tat. But the Hatfields had crossed a line. They had killed an unarmed, defenseless woman and clubbed another unarmed woman, a grandmother, who had gone to help. Bad Frank Phillips whipped up a mighty posse and went into West Virginia in force. They tracked down Crazy Jim Vance and shot him in the head. They captured eight Hatfields and Cottontop mounts and fought off everyone who tried to stop them. The posse brought the Hatfields all the way to Louisville to stand trial. When they got them there, they ran into trouble. The Hatfield extradition across state lines from West Virginia to Kentucky was illegal. The case, Mahone v. Justice, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court decided that while the extradition was illegal and there was recourse for that, they were in Kentucky and therefore could be tried, despite how they got there. The eight Hatfields were sentenced to life in prison. Ellison, Cottontop, Mounts, who most agree was developmentally challenged, was pressured into giving a full confession. He was sentenced to hang by the neck until he was dead. On February 18, 1890, he stood on the gallows, surprised and confused. Asked if he had any final words, he shouted one sentence. The Hatfields made me do it. When the gallows tripped, and Cottontop fell to his death. Twenty-five years of feuding and fighting between the Hatfields and the McCoys came swiftly to an end. The story of the Hatfields and the McCoys is a tragic one. It is a story of love and family, and pain and loss, and entirely too much death in the remote and rugged mountains of Appalachia. The families tried to use what law there was in the area at that time, it was only when that system failed them that they took matters into their own hands and doled out their own frontier justice. A lot of the story is still unknown, and may never be known, but I do know that both families suffered tremendously. William Anderson Devilance Hatfield would find God in his later years. He was baptized in 1911 at the age of 71 and founded a congregation of the Church of Christ in West Virginia. He died January 6, 1921, at the age of 81. Randolph McCoy left the Tug Fork Valley and lived out his days as a ferry operator in Pikeville. He had lost his brother, four sons, and a daughter to the feud, and his wife would never fully recover from her injuries. He died March 28, 1914, at the age of 88. One can only imagine the anguish he suffered. On June 14, 2003, descendants of Devil Ants and Old Rannell got together in Pikeville, Kentucky, to declare an official truce between the families. 
They wanted to send a message that despite their family's histories, they were ready to leave the past where it belongs, in the past. If the Hatfields and the McCoys can learn to get along, maybe there's still some hope for the rest of us. There's a home place in the mountain where I'm longing now to be, where my loved ones are waiting. They're the dearest friends of me. Anne Maria Reeves was born on September 30th, 1832, in Culpeper, Virginia. Her father, Josiah Washington Reeves, a Methodist minister, was transferred to Philippi in what is now West Virginia, when Anne was 12. At 18, Anne married Granville Jarvis, and the couple would move to Webster, just south of Grafton, where her husband would establish a mercantile business. Appalachia is a tough place today, and I can only imagine what it was like 150 years ago. The records aren't completely clear, but Anne and Granville Jarvis would have between 11 and 13 children. Of those, only four would live to adulthood, The others succumbed to diseases like measles, typhoid, and diphtheria. And remember, this was a family of some means. Different people would deal with this in different ways. Anne Jarvis saw it as a call to action. In 1858, when Anne was just 26, she started a series of work clubs in neighboring towns. These clubs, composed only of women, would meet at a church in town. Anne's brother, Dr. James Reeves, and a friend, Dr. Amos Payne, would teach these women about health and sanitation. They, in turn, would go out into their communities and spread these lessons. Among other things, they taught people how to inspect food and milk. They raised money to help the poor get medical attention, and even went into homes to help families where the mother had tuberculosis. These were incredibly important lessons in pre-Civil War Appalachia, and public health in the area saw signs of improvement. Unfortunately, as health in Barber County was improving, the health of the Union was deteriorating quickly, and in 1861, war had broken out across the region. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had a major terminal in Grafton, and local residents understood its strategic value and knew it would be a point of contention. The population of the area had split allegiances, some loyal to the Union, some supportive of Virginia and the Confederacy. We will remember from the last episode that this area was Virginia before West Virginia became a state in 1863. What we learned in school was as true in Barber County as anywhere. Brother fought brother, and neighbor fought neighbor. Ann Jarvis knew this and knew what was coming. She called meetings of her clubs and implored them to remain neutral. She stated her objectives, quote, to make a sworn-to agreement between members that friendship and goodwill should obtain in the clubs for the duration and aftermath of the war, that all efforts to divide the churches and lodges should not only be frowned upon, but prevented, end quote. When epidemics of measles and typhoid broke out in local military camps, Anne called her work groups to action. She stated that she would stand for, quote, no mistreatment of our members. We are comprised of both the blue and the gray. 
end quote. Throughout the war, Ann Jarvis and her workday volunteers worked tirelessly, providing care to soldiers from both sides. It must have been a time of great personal struggle for Anne, as during the course of the war, despite all of her knowledge and effort, she lost four of her own children to disease. She also gave birth to a daughter, Anna Jarvis, in 1864. Anna would, in many ways, grow up to be more famous than her mother, although her fame was certainly due to and in tribute to her mother. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Suffice it to say that between what was happening at home and her work in the field, these were difficult years for Ann Jarvis. At the end of the war, you would hope she would get a break, but she did not. As soldiers returned home from both sides to what had become, during the course of the war, West Virginia, there were understandably bad feelings. It was a nearly impossible task for local officials to mitigate these feelings, as everyone had chosen a side. Everyone, it seemed, but Ann Jarvis and her group of volunteers. They called on her to help, and Ann decided to hold what she called a friendship day for soldiers from both sides and their families. The event was held at the Taylor County Courthouse and was well attended. Ann spoke and asked people to set aside their differences and come together to heal their community. The band played both Dixie and the Star-Spangled Banner, and then everyone joined together to sing Old Lang Syne. Today, we may rightfully associate this song with New Year's, but it is really a song about old friendships and how, though we may go down different paths, we shouldn't forget where we come from. The gathering was a success. Anne continued her mission of working with those in need. She also remained active with the church. Anne and her husband's efforts were instrumental in the building of Andrews Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton, where Anne would teach Sunday school for 25 years. She also spoke often on public health, religion, and literature. When her husband died in 1902, Anne Jarvis moved to Philadelphia to be closer to her four surviving children. She lived with her daughter Anna until her death on May 9, 1905. On the first anniversary of her mother's death, Anna met with family and friends and announced a private memorial service the following year. One year after that, in 1908, Andrews Methodist Church in Grafton held a public service honoring the memory of Anne Jarvis. Her daughter, Anna, couldn't attend, but she sent 500 of her mother's favorite flowers, white carnations, to the church. West Virginia has celebrated this day ever since, and in 1914, Woodrow Wilson set aside the second Sunday in May as a national holiday. Anne Maria Reeves Jarvis was a remarkable woman. Despite incredible personal suffering, she helped the poor and the sick, nurtured children and soldiers back to health, and worked to heal her whole community. Whenever someone asked for her help, no matter the circumstances, she was there. The day we celebrate in May commemorates the life of Ann Jarvis. But it is not Ann Jarvis Day, because there are so many others like her, and there always have been. The day we celebrate in May, of course, you already know, but now you know how it started, in a tiny town, in the heart of Appalachia. The day, of course, is Mother's Day. And when this day comes around, I want you to look at one more thing, because Anna Jarvis was adamant about this. I want you to look at the apostrophe. It is not at the end of the word on purpose, because the day is not a generic one, 
to honor all mothers. It's a personal one to honor yours. Her thoughts wander back to her childhood When April snow was falling down Before her eyes the snowflakes would vanish Disappearing as they barely touched the ground April snow, April snow Cole. In the United States, it is hard to think of coal these days without thinking of West Virginia. And it is almost impossible to think of West Virginia without thinking about coal. But that wasn't always so. Before the Civil War, the area that is now West Virginia had very few coal mines. Estimates of the number of coal miners at the time hover around 1,500. This area was mountainous and remote, which would have made getting coal to market difficult. But there wasn't a huge demand for coal, and what demand there was could be met by far more easily accessible mines in far more developed regions of the country. The Industrial Revolution changed all of that, and the demand for coal skyrocketed. Coal deposits were surveyed, land was acquired, and train lines were run deep into the West Virginia hills. Coal production in West Virginia increased tenfold, from 489,000 tons in 1869 to 4.8 million tons in 1889. With the increased production came an increased need for labor, and there simply weren't enough people in West Virginia to meet this need. The companies began recruiting people, starting with African Americans in the South and very quickly moving on to immigrants, many fresh off the boat. Because of the remote nature of many of these mines, there was little or no infrastructure in place. So coal companies built towns to house the miners and their families. These company towns were used as an incentive in the recruitment process and may have even been built with good intentions, but they quickly devolved into something else entirely. The lack of competition meant that miners had to pay what the company asked for rent and utilities. Soon companies took up the practice of paying miners in scrip, which was company-printed money that had no value elsewhere. The scrip could be used in the company's store, the only store the miners and their families had access to, and often even basic necessities had hugely inflated price tags. You could trade the scrip for cash on the black market for a loss, but God help you if the company found out. Soon these miners found themselves in deep barely making it from paycheck to paycheck if they were lucky, and with almost no way out. Short of stealing away in the night with what you could carry and a hundred miles of wilderness in every direction, they were essentially trapped. On top of this, coal mining is backbreaking and incredibly dangerous work, leaving miners exhausted and with few waking hours to even think about getting out. I can only imagine the hopelessness of the situation. The coal companies, on the other hand, were thriving. Since everything they paid out in wages came right back to them, their profit margins were huge. They knew they had struck gold, and as long as nobody interfered, they could make a fortune. In the first two decades of the 20th century, several things happened in West Virginia which threatened the coal company system. December 6, 1907, an explosion blasts Fairmont Coal Company's number six and number eight mines. 361 miners were killed. 
four escaped, and all four died of their injuries. The Monongah mine disaster was the worst in U.S. history and led to the 1910 creation of the Bureau of Mines, charged with inspecting mines and investigating disasters. In 1912, in the Paint Creek Mines of Kanawha County, miners asked for a pay raise of two and a half cents per ton of coal. This would bring them up to the pay of other miners in the area. The request was denied, and the miners went on strike. The coal companies hired strike breakers from the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, who immediately began evicting striking miners from company housing. They prevented the miners from using company roads or bridges and even company resources like running water. Enter the United Mine Workers Union, who erected a tent camp and brought supplies. Baldwin Feltz agents entered these camps at night with machine guns and shot into the tents. The miners retaliated, and when word spread to other parts of the state, other miners came to their aid. Martial law was declared, and many were arrested. After almost a year, a new governor, Henry Hatfield, was sworn in. He offered a settlement and told the strikers they would take it or be deported from the state. They took it. After the year-long strike, which resulted in over 50 deaths and $100 million in lost productivity, the miners went back to work. This strike would lead to a congressional investigation into West Virginia coal mine conditions, though, which was a good thing. But World War I was on the horizon, and that would change the focus of the nation. It increased the demand for coal, and going on strike was not an option. But it also took young men out of the coal fields and showed them a different world. It allowed them to interact with people from different places, many perhaps for the first time. When these young men returned to West Virginia, it was with a different worldview. By 1920, the United Mine Workers had organized unions in place in much of West Virginia. Only the southern coal fields remained non-union due to their isolation and employment of Baldwin Feltz agents to keep the unions out by any and all means. Miners who wanted to organize were threatened with termination, blacklisting, and eviction. They organized anyway. When the unions challenged the evictions, Mingo County Sheriff G.T. Blankenship stepped in and said only county officials could carry out evictions. He arrested Baldwin Feltz agents when they continued their work in the eviction of coal miners. The United Mine Workers set up tent colonies all over southern West Virginia, and soon the Tug Fork River Valley was full of angry, idle, armed miners. In early May of 1920, at the Stone Mountain Coal Company near the town of Matewan, 100% of the miners joined the union. 13 Baldwin Feltz agents were called in to evict them, and they arrived to carry out their evictions on May 19th. When they returned to Matewan, they were confronted by the pro-union town leadership, Mayor Cable Testerman and Chief of Police Sid Hatfield. Hatfield had a warrant for their arrest, signed by the sheriff, for illegal evictions. The agents said they had a warrant for Hatfield. Arguing ensued, which deteriorated quickly. Guns were drawn, and within seconds, the mayor, two townspeople, and seven Baldwin Feltz agents lay dead in the streets of Matewan. This gunfight became known as the Matewan Massacre, and the miners saw it as a victory. The company had been beaten. Sid Hatfield became a hero, and the unions gained strength. 
Hatfield was acquitted of any wrongdoing, fanning the flames. The coal barons were worried and intensified their resistance. A year later, on August 1, 1921, Sid Hatfield found himself accused of dynamiting the Mohawk Mining Coal Temple and arrived at the McDowell County Courthouse in Welch to stand trial. As he climbed the stairs, three Baldwin Feltz agents waited for him at the top. They drew guns on an unarmed Hatfield and shot him and his deputy in cold blood. Word of Hatfield's assassination traveled like wildfire through the coal camps, and miners everywhere began to take up arms and assemble. Six days later, the United Mine Workers called a rally at the state capitol in Charleston. Thousands of miners came. The union presented then-Governor Ephraim Morgan with a list of demands. They were summarily rejected. To the miners, the message was clear. If they wanted their rights, they would have to fight for them and take them by force. By August 24th, as many as 10,000 miners had gathered along Lens Creek, just south of Charleston. Many of those assembled had served in World War I. They knew a thing or two about combat, about organization and discipline and solidarity. Those in charge looked out at a sea of faces, and what they saw was staggering. These miners came in every shape and size. Some were young, some old, some fathers and sons together. Some were black, some were white. Some were native-born Americans, and many were from countries across Europe. They didn't all speak the same language or share the same culture, but they were all a special breed. They were all West Virginia coal miners, and they were all ready to fight for their rights, for each other, and for other miners they had never met. The leaders got them all to tie a red bandana around their neck to identify them and unify them, and so, out of many, they became one. If they were going to march on Mingo County, they were going to have to go through Logan County to do it. And, as I'm sure many of them hoped, that would be over Logan County Sheriff Don Chafin's dead body. Chafin was a powerful, influential, tyrannical sheriff who was staunchly anti-union and firmly in the pocket of the coal companies. They bribed him as much as $50,000 a year to keep the unions out of Logan County. He could see the writing on the wall, though, and knew eventually he might have to fight. He had assembled a private army, 2,000 strong, stockpiled machine guns, and built fortifications along Blair Mountain, the route they must travel to cross the county. On August 25th, the miners marched south, and Sheriff Chafin assembled his army and dug in. When these groups met, the fighting ensued, and the United Mine Workers feared the bloodbath to come. They convinced the miners to turn back. Right about then, West Virginia State Police arrived, sent by Governor Morgan to arrest the leadership of the miners. Fighting broke out, and several miners were shot. The tide of the miners turned back towards Blair Mountain and advanced. By August 29th, a full-scale battle was raging. Governor Morgan sent in the National Guard, and Sheriff Chapin dropped pipe bombs and tear gas from borrowed airplanes. He was enraged by the miners in their red bandanas, and he told his men to get those goddamn rednecks, whatever it takes. By September 2nd, over a million rounds of ammunition had been fired, and perhaps a hundred men lay dead. United States President Warren Harding sent in federal troops, heavily armed and supported by World War I aircraft. The Redneck Army knew they could not fight the United States Army for a multitude of reasons. They laid down their arms and went home. The Battle of Blair Mountain was over. The coal companies had won. 
985 miners were arrested, and many would go to jail for their part. United Mine Workers' membership faltered to less than 1,000 members in West Virginia, and the coal companies went back to business as usual. But the events that happened in August of 1920 caught the nation's attention. The media called out the coal companies for their deplorable practices, and the country listened. A free press, after all, is essential to a free country. And while soon the entire nation would sink into the Great Depression, a spark had taken hold. In 1933, as part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, the National Industrial Recovery Act was passed, and miners in southern West Virginia were finally allowed to unionize. The West Virginia Mine Wars were a terrible and challenging chapter in our nation's history, but provide a great lesson today as talk turns towards deregulation. Biblically, greed is one of the seven deadly sins. When you combine greed and a lack of regulations, you end up with the company town. In this case, literally. The coal camps of that era were full of decent, hard-working people, people who worked harder than you or I. But they could never get ahead. They found themselves trapped and with little hope. That's a dangerous place to put people, as is evidenced by the Battle of Blair Mountain, the largest civil insurrection in the history of the country if you exclude the Civil War. This is a long and complicated story, but an important one, and one I wanted to share so we remember our history and may be able to avoid repeating it. Different words and phrases have different meanings at different times and in different places. For those thousands of people descended from West Virginia's coal miners who are familiar with their history, the term redneck has a very personal meaning. It's a badge they wear with honor. And they should. Traveling down this lonesome highway, I cry blue tears for only you. I have left you for another, and I've lost the last thing that is true. How can I be so deceitful? You used to mean the world to me. November 15th, 1966. Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette are riding through the so-called TNT area, an old World War II munitions plant just outside of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It was about midnight, and the couples were riding back to town in Roger's 1956 Chevy Bel Air. They came over a rise in the road, and Steve saw something off to one side. He shouted for the others to look, and they did. What they saw horrified them and would haunt them the rest of their lives. According to all four, they saw a figure, gray in color but otherwise humanoid, with long wings stretched out behind it and off to the side. This thing had huge red eyes that glowed in the light of their headlights. It disappeared around the corner of an old powerhouse, not walking properly, but wobbling like it was off balance. The four of them sat stunned for a minute, and then Roger hit the gas, and they shot off down the road. Screeching around the corner and out onto Route 62, they saw the figure again up on a hill. When their headlights hit it, it took off like a rocket, straight into the air. Soon they saw it for a third time, but now it was above them, flying just behind the car. The three passengers yelled for Roger to go faster, and he pushed the gas pedal to the floor. 
The Chevy reached speeds over 100 miles per hour, but the flying creature kept pace. Finally, they came over a rise and saw the lights of Point Pleasant ahead of them. Just as quickly as it appeared, it was gone. Terrified and breathing hard, the four pulled into Dairyland and came screeching to a stop. All four tried to talk at once. Linda brought up the idea of going to the police, but they were afraid they wouldn't be believed. Making a decision I certainly would not have, they decided to turn around and go back for another look. They got as far as the gate and thought better of it. Roger went to turn back around towards town, and as he turned, they spotted a large dead dog in the road. Suddenly, something came out of the darkness and leapt over the back of their car and disappeared out into the field. That was enough. They drove quickly back into town and stopped at a place called Tiny's Drive-In. They asked for the police to be called, which they were. Soon, Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead appeared on the scene. The Scarberries and Millettes now returned for a third time, this time with Halstead behind them. When they got to the gate, they noticed the dead dog they had seen earlier was gone. They saw this winged, gray, man-like creature again. But when Halstead shined his spotlight in that direction, it was gone. Halstead didn't see the figure, but did see what appeared to be smoke or dust where they had pointed. They decided to call it a night, but the two couples stayed together that night, terrified by what they had seen and afraid to be alone. Halstead made a report to Sheriff George Johnson, and a press conference was called the next day. The four witnesses reported what they had seen, and Deputy Sheriff Halstead stated he had known them their whole lives, and they had never been in any trouble, so he had no reason not to believe them. And that, to me, is the remarkable thing about this story. When something like this happens in a small town, you know these people. You know their parents, their teachers. You know if they have weird imaginations or drink too much. But from everything I've read, these were four pretty normal, healthy, young, church-going folks. They may not have seen what they thought they saw, but were unlikely to have just made the story up. Clearly, the sheriff and his deputy agreed. As soon as stories of this bird monster hit the press, other sightings started to file in. Marcella Bennett reported stopping her car because she saw something in the road. When she got out, a large gray thing rose up from the ground with terrible glowing eyes. She was so terrified, she dropped her baby. Recovering the infant, she ran into her friend's nearby house and locked the door. She called the police, but when they arrived, there was no trace of the large creature. Several days later, Thomas Uri was driving along Route 62, just north of the TNT area, when he noticed a gray, man-like figure standing in a field. Suddenly, it spread its huge wings and took off straight up. Uri took off as well and claimed the creature kept up with him, even though he was driving at 75 miles per hour. On November 17th, journalist Pat Seiler wrote an article in the Huntington Herald-Dispatch in which she gave this mysterious creature the name we would forever after refer to it as, Mothman. Soon thereafter, West Virginia University wildlife biologist Dr. Robert Smith offered an explanation. 
He claimed that what people were seeing was a sandhill crane. Standing as tall as a man, with a seven-foot wingspan, a bird-like walk, and large red eyes, he claimed one must have left its normal migration route, and people just weren't used to seeing one. Over the next 13 months, as many as 100 people reported encountering the mysterious Mothman. What I find interesting is that none of these encounters, not one, reported an aggressive or violent Mothman. People reported being scared, startled, terrified even by him. And many said he chased them, but he never seemed to catch them. Having seen reports that he could fly at 100 miles per hour, this seems curious if he meant to cause them harm. I also find it interesting that most say, when they came into the light, that he would disappear, that he was somehow afraid of the light. Not that anyone has claimed some sort of human-moth hybrid, but someone should have made the argument earlier on that moths are attracted to light, and maybe he would have ended up with a cooler name than Mothman, like Grey Wing, or Pegasus Man, or perhaps a more poetic take like Harpy Man or Valkyrie Man, or something prehistoric like Pterodactyl Man. I digress. Fast forward 13 months to the day of Mothman's first sighting, that fateful night at the TNT area. It is December 15th, 1967, a Friday, and the people of Point Pleasant are on their way home from work. It's rush hour, and there is a line of traffic on the Silver Bridge, a 1928 I-bar chain suspension bridge over the Ohio River. Very suddenly, one of the I-bars failed, and the bridge collapsed in on itself, dumping dozens of cars into the frigid river below. 46 people died in the accident, and two were never found again, making the Silver Bridge disaster the worst bridge disaster in U.S. history to that point. After the Silver Bridge collapsed, Mothman was never seen again, at least not in Point Pleasant. There have been sightings of a winged humanoid in other parts of the world, though. The ones most often cited in the literature were at Chernobyl and in Manhattan before 9-11. Other sightings occurred before the I-35 bridge collapse in Minneapolis and before an outbreak of swine flu in Mexico and at Fukushima in Japan. In an incident reported in Freiburg, Germany, a group of miners showed up for work and were scared away by a large winged man standing at the mine entrance. About an hour later, the mine collapsed. Had those miners not been scared away by this vision, they all would have perished. These stories have led some to believe this Mothman is not a monster, but a messenger of some sort who warns us of impending disaster. Taken in this context, the story of a winged messenger is an old one. Many Native American cultures discuss the Thunderbird as a messenger or even a courier into the next world which appears soon before you die. Some accounts of the Irish Banshee are of a winged woman who appears before the death of a family member. And, dare I say it, in a purely academic sense, the world is full of stories of winged people, most commonly referred to as angels. It's been 50 years now since the collapse of the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant. I visited the town recently and found the name suited it. It is a pleasant town with pleasant people. They have embraced the Mothman story, some more tongue-in-cheek than others. 
and built a statue and a museum to tell the story. I don't have any new information to offer. I only hope I have presented the story as I understand it. I won't go so far as to say I believe in the Mothman, but I will say this. I believe the people of Point Pleasant were telling the truth about those who were said to have seen him. These were honest, decent people. They weren't prone to making up stories, and not one of them, even on their deathbed, recanted their story to my knowledge. So I do believe that they believe they saw something. Do a Google image search for a sandhill crane, and you'll certainly see where that explanation comes from. And we all know that fear has a weird way of turning a knot on an old wood door into the eye of a person standing behind it. But I wonder. I wonder what people really saw back in 1966. I'm certainly not arrogant enough to believe I know everything, or that there aren't things out there I can't explain. I know this, though. If I ever see a humanoid figure with wings, I'll never tell you. But I will pay more attention afterwards and always check over my shoulder. Because, as the saying goes, better safe than sorry. The man down at the Texaco filled up my truck with gas. Said, girl, where you headed today? And would you like to fix that mirror that's falling on your dash? No thanks, I don't need it anyway Straight ahead and down the road I'm going That's it for the podcast this week. Thanks for tuning in. Next time on American Anthology, I'll be coming to you from the beautiful state of North Carolina. For more information on me, or my travels, or to get in touch, come on over and stop by my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter, at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram, at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two, for me and you. American Anthology is available on iTunes and Stitcher. If those are where we connect, please take a minute to rate and review. Music this week comes from Rachel Burge and Blue Dawning off of their self-titled album, and available on iTunes. She's got such a great voice, doesn't she? To find out more about Rachel and Blue Dawning, head over to her website, rachelburge.com, or you can find them on Facebook. Our background music comes from Kevin McLeod over at incomptechmusic.com. Sound effects come from the great folks over at freesfx.com, and our theme from the legendary Memphis Slim. Thanks again for listening. My name again is Mike Harding, and until next time, keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.